So there, is a, there are stories that shaped my generation. I want to talk to you about what those stories are. So uh, we really loved stories that gave us a hero mentality. We loved to have the mentality of the hero. And, and the story I think that most exemplifies this is uh, one that really shaped my generation, especially here in the United States, is the story of Harry Potter, right? So you have this one guy who, uh, who is able to find in himself all of the resources to overcome every aspect of evil that might come against him, right? So, so uh, in himself, he is able to sort of overcome all odds and uh, be the hero of the story, right? Okay, so that's, that's the type of stories that my generation grew up with. Well, now there's a whole different set of stories that are forming generations. And I want to talk to you about uh, what those stories are. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you uh, about some different movies that exist today, uh, some different TV shows. And uh, so, so spoiler alert, I'm going to give away the entire premise of all of these shows. So just be prepared for that. Um, so here we go. Uh, the Hunger Games. The Hunger Games is all about a hopeless, dystopian future. Uh, it's po- post-apocalyptic, and what has happened is that the government, they make children fight each other. They make children fight to the death, uh, and they say that this is to preserve the unity of the country. This is what unifies the country. What actually is happening is that the government is using that to oppress the country, right? That's what's happening. So it's a hopeless dystopian future. Uh, the Divergent series is all about a hopeless dystopian post-apocalyptic Chicago where you have uh, these, uh, these factions, like everybody, the government segregates people into factions and then uses that system to actually oppress people. Like, that's, that's what happens. That's the story that is told to oppress and pacify people, keep them kind of under the, the spell or whatever. So it's hopeless dystopian future. The Walking Dead. Buckle in for this one. Okay, The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead is all about a hopeless dystopian post-apocalyptic future where uh, it's all about pure survival, right? Because, because the dead suddenly are alive now, they're rising, and they just are the only thing they're concerned about is eating the brains of other people. And so they go about this process, and, they, uh, and then other people can be turned into the dead, and they'll be a part of the walking dead. And so, and so at the, the first few seasons of this show, you're like, oh, they're going to find a solution. They're going to figure out how to, like, fix the dead problem, right? Like, they're going to it's they're gonna fix it. Well, they're in the ninth season, and now we've all resigned the fact that there's just no hope, that there is now a new redefined reality. They're not actually going to fix this dead problem, but they've got to kind of redefine their lives in the midst of it. It's never going to end, this thing that they're facing. And so, like, hopelessness, like, they're trying to find a new hope in their hopelessness, but the point is, like, you can't overcome the thing that they were facing. Right? And so all of these stories are really shaping our culture today, for what it's worth. Our, culture, uh, our cultural stories, they thrive on a sense of hopelessness. That's what's shaping our culture today. Are we aware of that? So, uh, so it's no surprise, then, that hopelessness has become a major determining factor in many of our cultural operating procedures. So... Uh, so we're going to talk about politics, everybody. Just be with me for a second. Okay, so, so just consider our American political rhetoric over the last 12 years. So uh, a very recent example, about three weeks ago, a 16-year-old stood in front of the UN and explained how hopeless our world was because of what's happening to the environment. Right? That, that we are without hope. And that, in fact, if we changed everything right now, 
that it still would not fix the problems that we are going to encounter in the next 10 years, right? That's, so this is what this person stood in front of the UN and explained to them. And so, so she chastised politicians for not doing any, anything about it. She lamented our hopelessness. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the, the story that we get there. And that's just within the last three weeks. You had a whole bunch of people who skipped, kids who skipped school, who protested school in order to say, we have not done our job. The world has not done our job. The adults who raised us have not done their job to take care of this problem, right? It's all thriving on hopelessness. And then uh, it's become apparent that apparently the way you get elected in our country is by selling hopelessness to people. So, so think about uh, uh, President Obama. President Obama, what he did was he ran on two platforms in the, in the eight years that he ran. He ran on hope and change. That was his platform. And so, so what that is saying is the way things currently are, if it continues this way, we will be in a hopeless situation unless our Savior comes in and fixes our hopelessness, right? That's the, that's the, the mentality that we engage things with. Things are so hopeless that we need something different. And then, uh, not that, so, so now we go to uh, Trump, President Trump is, now he, the polls showed us that one thing was going to happen, right? The polls showed us before he got elected that, that actually he wasn't going to win, right? But then what happened? You had a whole bunch of people that felt incredibly hopeless. Incredibly hopeless at the election of another Democratic president, whatever it might be, you had all of these people who felt really, really hopeless who showed up at the polls and nobody expected it, right? And so, so there was an upset. So what that tells us is that hopelessness is driving so much of even our political atmosphere, so much of our cultural atmosphere. And our culture is actually in a really, really hard place right now because the major forming factor that exists there, hopelessness, which is the collective sum of our fears and our anxieties, our insecurities in relation to our future, the future of our kids, the future of our society, the future of our physical and our emotional well-being, all of these things. We have all of these anxieties and insecurities. And our culture is being formed by that. And here is the wonderfully good news. In a world that is thriving on fear and hopelessness and insecurity, Christians tell a different story. So, uh, so we're in First Peter, and we're in chapter 1. And we, we introduced this book last week. And I, I just want to kind of review some of the things that we talked about. Peter's audience, the people that he is writing to, they had every sense of security stripped away from them. So they didn't just have stories that shaped them. They didn't just have what-ifs off in their future, but they, they were actually experiencing the, like the physical, physical securities that they had being taken away from them on a constant basis. The, their world had betrayed them. They had been evicted from their home, sent out to another place. Uh, their government had betrayed them. Their friends had betrayed them. The world that was around them had turned against them. And now, on top of that, you have persecutions against Christians, like increasing in, in different spots around the area. People are, are not liking the fact that Christians are around. People are afraid of Christians, and so they're kicking them out of their places. And so Peter's writing to a group of, exi- or a group of Christians who find themselves as exiles and refugees in a place that was then called Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey. That's where they're at. And, and, and they're facing all of these things, and they're not only facing all of these things, but, but every Christian is sensing this idea that the security that they once had is being taken away from them. 
that it's now in jeopardy. And, and this is showing us that the predictions that Jesus made are actually coming true. Jesus said things like, my followers are going to experience like, rough times. Hard things are going to come towards my followers. And so, so Peter, he, he's writing to these people and he calls them exiles. And he uses that title, even the ones who are not physically exiled from their homes, he uses that title of exile because what we talked about last week is, is this world... If we're, if we're a believer in Jesus, if we are trusted in Christ, this world is not our home. We have no foundation here. Our foundation is in heaven, right? That's the, that's the idea that we get. And so, so when this home starts to turn against us, you know what? It's okay because this isn't really our home. Our home is in heaven. And this is what he's trying to remind them of. And so in the middle of their rapidly changing, insecure reality, they need encouragement that there is something truly secure about who they are. Something that they can take to the bank. So just a reminder, the challenge that that Peter's audience is facing is not the same challenges that we face today. I'm not going to say that it's not a possibility off somewhere in our future, but today these are not the things that we face. This is not nearly, we don't have it nearly as bad as they had it. But I think it's valuable for us to be prepared with the tools to deal with exile. Because if we are prepared with those tools, then, that, then what that means is that we're going to have the tools to deal with whatever insecurities might come our way. And so, uh, so in the middle of insecurity and anxiety and temptations, all uh, temptations toward hopelessness, in the middle of their exile, in the middle of their legitimate suffering, Peter writes these words in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His first words, the first words that he wants to say to them after he introduces him and and says who he's writing to, his first words that he has to say is is words of worship, words of exclamation of of who God is, of praise to God. You know, there, there are folks who regardless of the things that they face, of the things that come against them, they carry with them into every single situation a sense of worship of God. They're praising God. When, when something awful happens in their life, they're still praising God, exclaiming His praises. They consistently hope in the Lord. They're convinced of how good God is in the midst of their suffering. They carry with them an attitude that is constantly worshipful. So can I confess something in our behalf? We don't really understand that person. That person kind of makes us go like, really? Like, that's your attitude? How can you, like, how do you, how do you just keep that mindset all the time? Gosh, what's wrong with you? Like, that's kind of the things that we think when we see a person like that sometimes. Can't you see everything that's going on around you? And so, so when we see a person like that, I, I, I'm just curious, like, what can cause a person who in the midst of suffering, in the, in the midst of facing and writing to people who are facing some of the worst things they've ever faced in their life, what can cause a person to have their first words be words of praise? So can I tell you what it seems to be? That through all of the hardship and, and all of the profound hopelessness that has come towards these people, through all the profound hopelessness that, that, that was projected towards Peter, we talked about that last week, he was promised a death just like Jesus had, where his arms would be stretched out. Through all of these things, their faith has become the strongest and most defining factor of their life through every single sense of hopelessness and fear and anxiety and insecurity, their faith has become the strongest aspect of their life. And so I want to I be real honest with all of you. There are some of you in this church 
who I look at and I observe your faith and I look at your attitude in the midst of adversity. And some of you have had a lot of things taken away from you. You have experienced a, a, a hardship far greater than many of us could imagine experiencing. But, but what you display in your attitude, in your demeanor, in your actions is joyful worship. And honestly, like to a lot of us, that's really confounding. We don't get it, but it is an encouragement to us. When we see this, like you, you, you are facing, you have these, this, this buildup of just hard stuff in your life, but you're able to be present with people. You don't play the victim. You don't complain like most folks do, uh, but, but you listen to people. You care about them. You worship God. You exclaim or you talk all the time about who God is. So through situations where hopelessness and fear would make others feel maybe uh, permission to be angry with God, what it does for you is it, is it gives you a hope and faith that have propelled you to worship. And so I want to I thank you, those of you who, who stand in our, our congregation, who are here and are constantly encouraging us and constantly talking about how good the Lord is, even in the midst of your difficulties, because you go before us as an example. You have a, strong, a faith that has proven to be strong over all of these years. And you're an example to us of just how sustaining a strong faith can be in the midst of difficulty. Your faith constantly overflows. It overflows into hope and joy. Hope and joy, it's like you're walking around, and, and no matter your circumstances, like these things are just falling out of you, right? Hope and joy wherever you go. So, so I want to talk about that faith, that faith that creates that kind of attitude and demeanor. And I want to talk about what the content of that faith is. Peter goes on in, in verse 3, and this is what he says. He says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, there is a lot there. There are a lot of words there, but there's one big question that Peter is answering. Despite everything that you're currently facing, everything you're currently going through, what kind of future do you have? That's the question that he's answering. What kind of future do we have? And so he uses three concepts to describe it. He describes it as a a living hope. So in the midst of a hopeless situation, in the midst of a situation that many people would look at and say, you have no hope here, you actually have a living hope. When everything has been taken from you, you have what is called an inheritance. When even your very life is threatened, you have the promise of salvation given to you. So these people, these people are suffering. These people he's writing to, they're in the midst of, of a difficulty and suffering unlike anything that they've ever faced before. And you know what suffering people need? More than anything else, suffering people need a reliable vision of a better future. People who are suffering need a reliable vision of a better future. And that's what, that's what Peter does. He gives them this vision. So, so he talks, he, he starts to unpack it there at verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he says, According to his great mercy, he's, we're, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is what happens. When, when God saves us, when we decide to follow Jesus, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, something happens, we get guaranteed something. The thing that we get guaranteed is that death will have no power over us. 
we get the promise that the thing that has defeated everybody else in all of history has no strength over us. This is what we get told. And so even when our jobs are taken away, even when our property is taken away, even when our very life is threatened, you know what? Death has no strength over those who call Jesus Lord. Because Jesus overcame death. Jesus rose from death. He actually, and in that moment, what he did for us when he overcame death, when he showed us just how strong he was, he stamped a guarantee on our future. So that when he rose, we too, like him, shall rise. That's the promise that we're given. Death would not defeat him, and it will not defeat us. And so that promise, that promise that is guaranteed in the actual historical event of Jesus' resurrection, it results in a hope that is certain. The single most important event in all of history, and this is why I I love talking about the resurrection, because it is the most important thing that that could ever happen, because it completely redefined reality. For all of God's followers, it, it guaranteed to us the promise that death will have no power. So, so that's, that's that promise that's given to us, the living hope that we're given. And, and then he talks about an inheritance. Verse 4, he says, We're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's unaffected by death. While, while death, we look around us, and, and death seems to be everywhere, we, in this promise that we're given, in this inheritance that we're given, it, it's unaffected by death. It's undefiled meaning that, that word defiled is talking about being touched by, by sin, being touched by just the brokenness of this world. But this inheritance that we have, it's not touched by that brokenness. It's untouched by sin. It's unfading. Um, meaning, so, so while time, we look at time, and, and as time goes on, things seem to decay. And as time goes on with this building, it seems to be falling apart in some places more and more, right? Like we can observe physical things in the world and say time takes a toll on everything around us. But you know what time has no power over? Time has no power over that inheritance. It's unfading. It can't decay. And it's kept in heaven for you. So it's real. It's protected by God. God is holding on to it for every single person who believes in him. So, so God's people, this is uh, God's people in the Old Testament. This is the idea of inheritance and how it, it builds through scripture. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament, they were looking for an inheritance. The inheritance that they were promised, this is the people of Israel, they were promised that, that God was going to give them land that they were going to have a very special land. Uh, God gave that promise to Abraham uh, way back, at, almost at the beginning of Genesis. He gives that promise to Abraham. And the whole story, as we read through the whole Testament, it's really a whole story about how they get their land and then how they lose their land because they disobeyed and then how they come back to their land. It's all about this inheritance of their land. But the land was really only a small picture for us of the real inheritance that God was, was promising. And Abraham, the guy who got the promise all the way back at the beginning, it seems that Abraham knew what the real inheritance was. In Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, this is what it says. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, the inheritance is the land. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. And so, yeah, we see again that this is the land, this is the inheritance that he was given. Is it a foreign land? 
living in tenants with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Stop. Okay, so we're talking about the physical land at this point. And then it says something really interesting about Abraham. For he was looking, it might as well say he was really looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even in the midst of the Old Testament, where we read this story about the inheritance of the land, this is, this is what Abraham understood. There's a place that is even more certain and more reliable than this physical land that I can see and I can feel and I can kick and I can touch. There's something that is more real and more promising to me because guess what? You're going to read the story of the Old Testament and you'll see that the land, it gets like taken away. Mostly because God's frustrated with his people, right? Like because they had done what God told them not to do, right? But, but you read that story and that, that land is not certain. That land is not reliable to them. But there is something, some kind of inheritance that Abraham has promised. He knows that this inheritance is guaranteed, that it's protected by God. That even though he can't see it, in some ways it's more real to him even than that physical land that he was in. Okay, so, so inheritance. That inheritance, that, who's, uh, that, that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's, that's a promise. And from there, in this, this vision of the future, Peter moves from what, the content of, of what is promised, to who gets promised those things. Verse 5, he says, You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I want you to notice, the thing that he uses the word guarded for is not the inheritance. He doesn't use the word guarded even for the hope. He uses the word guarded for you. For you who trust in Jesus. That somehow, God is guarding you. Once you place your trust in, in Jesus, God has that. He has protected that. He has, uh, is guarding you for your salvation. The God of the universe... This is what this is saying. The God of the universe actually has a a protective hand over your future. So what are the implications of that? Like imagine, imagine looking at all these physical persecutions happening around you and imagine wondering, is my future really secure? Am I really saved? God has given me promises, but can I really trust those promises? And and when Peter says God's guarding it, this is what he's saying. He's making a, a point to say, hey, Christian, Guess what? Your salvation is the most secure, certain, unchangeable, guaranteed aspect of your reality. That nothing can take it away from you because guess what? The God of the universe has his hands upon it. So, so you know, because you didn't earn it. If you did earn it, it w- would probably be in jeopardy, but you didn't earn it. Jesus earned it. You know what? You can't protect it because if you, if you could protect it, that means you could probably lose protection over it, but God's got that taken care of. In fact, there's actually nothing you can do to get this salvation. There's, there's no reality. That means that there's no reality you can face that will cause you to lose it because God has it taken care of. Because you know what? Suffering people really need to know. Suffering people need to know what is secure about who they are. They need something that they can count on because they look around them and everything is showing them they can't count on anything. But this, what God has done in Christ, this they can count on. Okay, so you might say, all right, Peter, I get it. Christians have a bright and hopeful future. 
We're secure. There's nothing that can change that. But guess what? I'm still suffering. I, and, and, and while I'm suffering, I don't feel or experience these things that you're telling me I might feel or experience. And so, so Peter, what do I do about this reality? What does it take to own this hope? Well, Peter gives an idea and goes on in verse 5. He says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So let's talk about faith for a second. So, so faith the size of a mustard seed, a very, very small faith, will guarantee you salvation. That's the promise that Scripture gives to us. Faith the size of a mustard seed guarantees you salvation. But you know what? Big faith, strong faith, it sustains joy in the midst of suffering. So the difference between a person who feels and experiences the hope in the midst of suffering and one who doesn't, what we're really talking about is the size of their faith. So, so we all have muscles, uh, and uh, when we work out those muscles, the purpose of working those out, those, those muscles are able, the stronger they get, to endure more over long periods of time, right? And certain muscles can't endure very much over a long period of time, unless, and the only way that it gets to the point where it can endure is if it is built, if it is strengthened. So only those muscles in our body that are the strongest are going to be able to last the longest over the long haul. So faith is a muscle, and, and the weight Peter's audience is carrying is heavy. And, and so he knows that it's only going to keep getting heavier, too. This, like, this load is not going to lighten. And so what he does is he wants to strengthen their faith. And so, so Peter says, let me show you what a strong faith looks like. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, so in this first quality of a strong faith, Peter points to what seems to be an impossible paradox. He says, you rejoice though you are grieved. Grief and rejoicing exist at the same time. And this makes no sense to anybody who lives in this world. It just doesn't work. Like the equation doesn't seem to work itself out. And so let's talk about what he's not saying real quick, because we need to be clear about that. He's not saying these awful things that you are facing bring you joy, right? He is very aware of the fact that the, the awful things they are facing, that they are worth grieving over. And grieving is an important thing to do. It's an important process to carry out. And, and there are many things in this world that need to be grieved, Okay, so, so it's not these bad things that, that bring the joy. No, in fact, we, we think grief is a legitimate thing. This is what he is saying. He's saying that in the middle of grief, you hold on to the vision that Jesus is up to something bigger than what you are aware of. You hold on to the fact that there's a re- reward that will far outweigh the cost of whatever grief you're experiencing right now. So I want to give a, a concrete illustration of this. Um, 2015, right before Andrea and I got married, uh, we lost Andrea's mom to brain cancer. And, uh, and what was really interesting and, and spectacular about that situation, while it was in the middle of grief, and it was in the middle of something really hard, we, we invited uh, tons of people to come to her memorial service, about 350 people all packed into to one little sanctuary. And, and uh, while we were there, we, 
we talked about the joy that she is right now experiencing because she is with Jesus. She is with her Lord and Savior right there with him. That, that even though this, this cancer had a hold of her body, she is experiencing the utmost joy. And, and even though we might grieve her loss right now in this moment, at the same time, inside of us exists this joy because we know she is with the author and the finisher of her faith. And at the same time, we got to proclaim to people who, 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 came, who weren't Christians, who, who didn't really know what it was to have a relationship with Jesus. We got to explain to them, and we got to show them even through how we grieved, how it is possible that at the same time, grief and joy can exist in a person. Verse 7 goes on. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you might go, okay, what's the revelation of Jesus Christ? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is that moment that we receive our certain inheritance. That moment that we receive the thing that has been promised to us. So Jesus is coming back to this earth. He's coming back to set up his kingdom and to give to his people everything that he has promised us. So in that moment, we receive all of these things. And this is, this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, you know what? Faith is going to, those who have faith, they're going to keep facing tests and trials up to that moment. And you know what? Faith will endure difficulty up, to, up until that moment. And, and faith is going to be refined through suffering up until that moment. That's a hard reality to sit with. But the, actually, the way our faith grows is by going through these hard things. And it tests our faith. And it proves our faith. And it strengthens our faith. So I would wager that most of us look at the trials and difficulties that come our way. And the first question that we ask is, how in the heck do I get out of this? Like, how do I avoid this? How do I run away from this? I don't want to go through this. I don't want to deal with this thing. Our hope is that this thing would just end. In fact, our prayers probably often look like that. Hey, Lord, would you just take this away? And we want to run away from them. But, but you know what happens to those who have faith. You know, after one trial ends, another one starts. And then, and then after that one ends, you get another one. Hey, and guess what? After that one gets over, it doesn't matter if it's taken away, if it ends quickly, because there's another one coming after that, right? So, so these things, they keep just coming at us. And so, so your hope is not in avoiding the trials and difficulty, but your hope is going through the trials and difficulty and letting them teach you how to trust Jesus more until that moment. They keep coming. The trials and the difficulties coming until that moment when the inheritance comes. And so we keep enduring. And the trials and difficulties keep coming. And they keep growing our faith. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So, so when our faith is strong, when our faith is built, when we build the muscles of our faith. And there's no shame if your faith is a small faith. We, uh, there, there are times that we go through where we have to build that faith. But when our faith is strong, what it does is it actually, like, it leads us away from playing the victim. It leads us away to, in the midst of any suffering, any sort of self-pity that we might have. 
It, it leads us away from being angry with God to maybe trying to understand what God is up to. Now, that doesn't mean that in those moments where, where we feel those strong emotions, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be honest about what we're experiencing. But what it does mean is that a strengthening faith will lead us away from shaking our fists at God and, and, and will lead us into a growing affection for Him no matter what we're facing. So strong faith actually pushes us to grow in affection for the Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. It deepens our love and commitment to him in the middle of trial and in the middle of grief and in the middle of suffering. So then verse 9 says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's talk about in uh, difficult realities, all the difficult realities that might come our way. And I don't know what those are for you, um, I know what they are for this audience. I know that it's having their homes taken away. I know that it's uh, looking around them and seeing their other Christians, brothers and sisters who are very close to them getting persecuted for their faith. So in the midst of those difficult realities, let's talk about uh, the difference between small faith and strong faith. In difficult realities, you know what? Small faith will save you. That's a guarantee. Small faith saves you. But you know what? Only strong faith sustains your emotions through the midst of that. You know what? Small faith, it actually does give you a promise. But only strong faith will create a joyful heart in the midst of that. You know what? Small faith, small faith gets an inheritance. That's a good thing. Small faith gets an inheritance. But only strong faith actually deepens your affection for Jesus in the middle of all those things. So the main point this morning is this. With strong faith, you will endure difficulty with joy. With strong faith, you'll endure difficulty with joy. And you know what? The difficulty will come. It might be something similar to, to what those people face and that Peter is writing to. It might be heavier than what they face. It, it might be lighter than what they face, but, but it will come. And you know what? I would much rather build my faith muscle and face those challenges with joy than to be emotionally overcome, than to be discouraged when that muscle, that faith muscle atrophies. Okay, so what? So, what you, you're saying, so like you might look at me and say, okay, Alex, you're saying just have faith. Like that's all you need to do. Just have more faith. You know what? God has a plan. So, so I'm just standing up here and telling you, you know what? Hey, just have more faith. God has a plan. No, I, that's not at all what I'm telling you because I think those words in times of suffering and grief can actually be kind of not the most helpful words that a person could speak to somebody else. So what I am saying is that right now, we need to work hard to build the muscle for whatever trial might come our way in the future. And you know what? There are actually practices that we can engage to help us grow our faith. So, so how do I build my faith muscle? It's a valid question to ask, so let's, let's talk about that. First thing you need to do is you need to identify and accept the difficulties that you're in the middle of. And for what it's worth, you won't want to accept them. It's not going to uh, be natural for you to accept these difficulties. Again, you're going to want to avoid them. You're going to want to run away from them. But, but the reason you identify and the reason you accept these things is because trials build a strong faith like nothing else ever can. If every trial is an opportunity, then we actually need to make sure that we don't waste those opportunities, but we take the chance to see how God can build our faith in the midst of it. So that's number one. Number two is do the opposite. 
do the opposite. I'm going to explain to you what this means. In difficulty, every single one of us has impulses, and I promise you that every single one of those impulses, nearly 100% of the time, are always going to be wrong impulses. Okay, so we need to do the opposite of what those impulses tell us. So, so we might tell us, hey, the, and when we get wronged by somebody, uh, our impulse is to get angry. And instead, what we probably need to do is create space for forgiveness. So we do the opposite. Uh, when something is hard, our impulse is to run away. And instead, what we probably need to do is we need to lean in a little bit. Uh, when we feel defeated, we might be inclined to skip church, but, but I want to tell you that the, the opposite thing and the good thing to do is probably get up and go, right? God will use that to build your faith. Uh, when, when you are feeling overwhelmed with the world and the things that are going on, like the natural impulse might be to numb yourself with TV. But, but I want to tell you, you need to do the opposite. You need to fill your soul with God's truth in those moments. That God will use that to, to build your faith. You know, you might have a tendency or a, a desire and inclination to, to play the victim in the midst of difficulty. And, and I want to tell you to do the opposite. And in those moments, thank God for the victories that he's given you. So do the opposite. Next step, evaluate. Evaluation is really, really important. It's a good spiritual practice. It takes many forms. Evaluate how you handle the difficulty. So you can do this through journaling. You can uh, sit down with a friend and verbally process with them. You can simply pray to God through whatever the difficulty is that you're facing, but evaluate it and actually examine, okay, Lord, in the midst of that thing that you took me through, in the midst of that trial, kind of help me grade myself here. Like, help me, help me see how you develop me. Help me see how you want me to adjust. Because then the important part is, we play in, in every situation we go through. Every trial we go through, we're, all, we're not going to get it all right. And so that creates blessed opportunities for us to confess and repent when we need to. And remember, you're not, not going to want to do any of these things. Like in the midst of those hard times, you're going to want to run away. You're going to want to numb yourself. But actually, when you engage this process, you know what God does? God uses this to grow your faith. As you keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this, and you know what? Over the long haul, you run into those trials and you encounter them with joy and you encounter them with gladness. Not because the trial is coming your way, but because your hope and joy and identity is grounded in Jesus. Number two for so what's. Invest faith in the next generation. The things that the next generation will face for being committed to Jesus will undoubtedly be far more difficult than anything that we've ever faced. So you know what? We need to be examples for them. But not only that, we actually need to prepare them for the kinds of things that they will face. They need to have a stronger faith than even the faith that we have because you know what? The stakes for following Jesus are going to be much higher than they are for us. And so we can train them to, and, and we can train them to see the world in a, in a way that helps them to face those trials with joy. And that's what I hope we do. That's why we invest so much energy into crossroads. That's why we invest energy. That's why we got three kids with us here this morning, and they're up in children's ministry because we care about investing in them because we want to see faith grow in them. And we got kids in the nursery, and we, we, we're praying for these kids, and we're loving them because we believe that, hey, staying committed to Jesus is going to be hard, but we want to see their faith go through for the long haul. Okay, so we're going to transition now to a, a time of communion. 
And as we do, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're actually going to read the last part of our passage today. So in verse 10, this is what it says. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, these are prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesied, they told the truth about the grace that was to be yours. So people in the past are talking to people in the present. When they wrote those words down, it was for us, those of us who believe. And they searched and inquired carefully, and they didn't know. They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So, so for millennia, the prophets, are the people of God, they've been trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is it that God's up to? He's having us write these things down. Why is our Messiah going to suffer? How long will our people encounter suffering? They knew from the prophets that, that, that the Messiah would suffer and that he would experience some sort of glory, but who would it be and, and how would it happen and how would it look? And verse 12 says this, it says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So even, even angels throughout history, as they're watching God work this plan out, they're, they're looking at it, and they, they don't even understand all the details of what's happening. But then God reveals Jesus, like Jesus comes on the scene and this secret that had been kept from the angels for so long, they're looking at it and then they're going, like, whoa, that was your plan? Like, that's what you had been up to? You were going to save all of these people from all of these different nations and tribes and ethnicities and you were going to bring them together in one people through Jesus by his sacrifice on the cross? You were going to pay for their sins? There was no way that could have been done, but God, you did it. Like, they're just, they have all of this worship for God. And now it has been revealed through, through Jesus in the Bible that, that Jesus would suffer in our place as a substitute for our sins. That he would take on the punishment on himself for every person who trusts in him. And that, that what would happen after that is that people would place their trust in Jesus and his spirit, the Holy Spirit, would actually come and indwell those people and live inside of those people. And actually start to create Christ, like turn us into little Christ, like turn us into the people that God desires us to be. These people would be graced and equipped to wait and suffer in ways that even the angels, when they look at this, they are shocked by it. So this morning we're going to take communion and we have... Uh, the plates up here. These plates have bread in them and they have juice in them. And, and the bread represents to us Jesus' broken body. What he went through, the, the, the punishment that he took upon his physical body for our sins. And the juice represents his blood that was shed for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin, so that we could actually stand before God as clean and pure because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to have these elements. We'll eat and drink together. And, and we practice an open communion here, which means that if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, uh, we are really glad that you're here. And we, we would love it if you would uh, eat and drink with us. Uh, and if you're not a believer this morning, uh, we're really glad that you're here too. Uh, these plates, we believe that these plates help us to make a proclamation a proclamation of our faith in Jesus, that nothing is more important about our identity than our faith in Jesus. And so if this morning you don't feel like you can make that proclamation, then I encourage you, just let the plates pass. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to say anything. Just let those, those pass by.